a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. And right now, uh, you know, we always have the running joke that we have the mobile Say the Damn Score studio that ends up in a lot of different places. And today that is in uh, the basement or the lower level of the Target Center in downtown Minneapolis. And we're happy to have on John Fokey. He is the voice of the Minnesota Lynx executive producer and studio host of the Minnesota Timberwolves. And, John, I really appreciate you making some time for me. Well, I'm glad that we could bring you down here. We call it the bowels of the Target Center. You know, I almost said that. But... You're, you're one layer below the floor, uh, kind of wedged in between the control room and the garbage bins. And uh, this is where we call it home for every single Timberwolves game, every single Lynx game as well. Well, if it actually has good audio quality this week uh we'll know why because uh, we got the, <laughs> the studio foam everywhere in here instead of my echoey spare bedroom <laughs> <laughs> you know one of the things i wanted to just jump on because it's kind of recent you just uh in june received the minnesota state sportscaster of the year at the national sports media association convention and that's not uh that's not like winning it in South Dakota or North Dakota. No disrespect to the people who won, but there's a lot of heavyweight broadcasters here in Minneapolis, and you're still on the young side of the spectrum. What did that mean to you, and how surprised were you that you were able to, to pull that off? Well, it meant a lot, um, really, because it's peer nominated and it's peer voted upon. So, you know, it's other broadcasters that, that cast the votes that, you know, nominate you, and so... Uh, when I found out I was nominated, uh, number one, I was very surprised, you know, because um, it's, you know, for what I do in terms of the WNBA, uh, there's there's not a whole lot of radio broadcasters. I mean, there's only a, a couple other teams uh, that do radio in the WNBA. Obviously, we here are, are fortunate because we do every game home and away. And because of the success of that team, you know, it drives a lot of people uh, who listen, who consume, whether it's on social media, on television, who follow the team. So, you know, certainly benefited from that. But, you know, the WNBA, it's such a short season compared to when you think about how popular and how long the NFL season is, how how popular and how long the NBA and NHL seasons are in the state of Minnesota. And then, of course, Minnesota Twins and the tradition and history that they have. So WNBA is is kind of buried amongst those. So it was it was shocking to be nominated. It was it was an honor to be nominated. And then we look at who you're nominated alongside Dan Barrero of KFAN, Corey Provis of the Minnesota Twins. And I remember looking at that when I when I got the email and thought, well, this was fun, you know. Uh, and, and then when Dave Gorin of, of NSMA actually called me in January and told me, um, I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And so it was one of those things that it, it was never an award that I thought about going out to win. Um, you, it just never even occurred to me that this was, was something. So, you know, to, to end up getting it was, was incredibly humbling. It was, it was an awesome honor. And then being down there, I think it didn't really hit me what, you know, just how big it was 
until I went to the actual convention. And you talk to some of the people that, you know, I've been, uh, I ran into a couple of NBA broadcasters who've been doing it for 20, 30 years. And that was their first win, you know, and they had their whole families down there. And, you know, other people who are, are repeat winners and you look at it and you go, well, wait a minute, like, I've put you on this pedestal for so many years and, and now, you know, I'm a winner like you are. It was it was really neat. And and again, once you started to look around and, and talk to people about, you know, what this award means on a bigger scale, uh, I think it started to sink in like how fortunate I was to, to end up winning it. Where do you keep your award? I don't see it here in the studio. No, nah, you know, uh, we were going to put John Shizzle on... Uh, he was going to be on duty to build me a little stand for it, and we just haven't gotten a lot of other projects going around the Target Center. Uh, no, I keep it. It's at home right now. It's it's on my mantle. Perfect. What does it say about the Twin City sports community? Because the way that this is voted on by peers, A, they have to respect your work, which they certainly do. They also have to – it's kind of a pol- political thing. They have to like you. What does it say about the – maybe the willingness and openness of the the Twin City sportscasting community to to nominate and and vote on somebody who's not an NBA or an NFL broadcaster which you see in almost all the other major markets. Yeah, I think, you know, number 1 it says that there are a lot of really uh talented broadcasters in the Twin Cities, not just in the Twin Cities, but I think in greater Minnesota, you know, in the state of Minnesota and you know, I think of of guys who have been working, uh, you know, Division three, Division two, uh, Division one, all over the place, and, and there are a lot of tremendous, you know, broadcasters, high school broadcasters from smaller towns in in Greater Minnesota, um, and I think that was the thing that was the coolest about going to the actual convention is, you know, when you're when you're there and you're meeting some of these other winners, it's not just NBA guys. It's not just NFL guys or, um, you know, Power 5 conference. But you're meeting folks that um, that do call high school sports, you know, that are, you know, the voice of their, their town and their teams there. And so I thought that was really neat. And, you know, for me, uh, what what was really cool about it is having started my career in a small town in southern Minnesota and covered high school sports and then stepped up into the collegiate ranks and, you know, kind of did that for a little bit before coming here and starting just as a producer, working your way into being a studio host, working your way into uh, filling in on WNBA games, to taking over the road games, to eventually in 2015 taking over all the games. And so, you know, along the way, I've been fortunate enough to build relationships with so many different people at so many different levels of sports media within, again, not just the Twin Cities, but really in all of the state of Minnesota, um, that, you know, learning from from all those different people and connecting with all those different people, um, you know, I think that is something that I will always carry with me. Um, And one of those things that I think along the way, when you talk about, you know, peer voting, uh, to be nominated and to have relationships like that, I think it certainly does help. So one of the questions that I ask on just about every single one of these episodes is what point in your life did you know that you wanted to go into sports broadcasting? A lot of people know early, but there's surprisingly a large number of late bloomers as well. What's your story? Uh, My story is Bulls-Pistons Eastern Conference Finals. Um, uh, I was supposed to be doing homework, and I was upstairs. I had this little like black and white uh, TV radio combo. You remember those things? I wanted it like a carnival. Uh, so I, anyway, I was supposed to be up there. I was supposed to be doing homework. Instead, I was uh, tuned into 
Um, I believe at that time it was the NBA on NBC. And they cut to a shot of, of Marv Albert, you know, setting the scene courtside. And I was just sitting up there watching that. And I thought, man, I was obsessed with the NBA. And I thought, man, Marv's got the best job, right? Like the biggest games. And he sits courtside for them all. Like what, what could be better than that? Uh, and it was at that moment I realized, I, I just said to myself, like, if I don't become an NBA player, because I was young enough that there were still those dreams that you thought you could, uh, then I want Marv's job. And basically from that point on, it was just finding ways to get in front of a mic, finding ways to do it. I mean, um, anything from announcing when I was in like eighth grade or ninth grade uh, doing the PA for like youth high school or youth basketball tournaments at the at our high school. Um, you know, filming, like playing my freshman basketball season, but hanging around because my brother is a senior and filming for the team, all their games and doing play by play while I was doing it, thinking that nobody would like watch the film with the sound on. But it turns out every Saturday morning, the coach would get them together and the whole varsity team would just die <laughs> listening to me call the game. And like, I had little segments where I'd find like a guy in the stands and he would be the fan of the game and make up a story about him. And um, so it was, but it it all started. I just remember that that moment of seeing Marv set the scene for that that Eastern Conference Finals, and and say that uh, is the best seat in the house, and I want the best seat in the house for every game. How long did it take for you to realize that they were listening to your play by play on those tapes? Well, my so my like I mentioned, my brother was a senior, and he came home after one day, and he was like, "Hey, you got to take it easy on the refs," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> You know, and this was a couple months into the season. He's like, we die laughing all the time. He's like, but you, you, were, you were going at the refs pretty hard. And I was like, I can't believe you guys are listening to it. He's like, coach loves it. We, we listen all the time. So uh, it was, pro- I mean, it was good, good portion through <laughs> his senior year uh, before he finally told me. And then you kind of get self-conscious, you know. So, like, I probably went one or two games without doing it. And then I was like, well, this is boring. So you start up again and. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'd love to. I'd love to find those tapes. I, I have no idea where they are. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun to uh, listen back. I actually just dug up for a different podcast a little clip from my high school broadcast. That's just an absolute train wreck, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it's because I I was talking with Katie Emmer who won the uh, yeah. the Jim Nance Award. Mm-hmm. She's going to be on the show actually before you, so I can talk about this here, but. I started it off with a clip from my college reel and tried to compare it to what she's doing, and it's it's not close. But Yeah, it was really cool. I got to meet Katie down there, and actually it was funny. Somebody introduced me to her, and she and I had crossed paths during Super Bowl week when she was doing stuff uh, freelancing for DraftKings, and I went on one of their pre-lock shows or something like that. So then I was like, wait a minute, you're the same person that won this huge award? Uh, so it was crazy. Like it's such a small world. Broadcasting is such a small world, and she is tremendous at what she does. So, what is it like on Super Bowl Radio Row? This is not where I wanted to go, but but I've always wondered. Some people, the veterans, seem to hate it. The younger people who maybe haven't experienced it seem to like it. What's your take? Uh, I was only out there for a couple of hours. Um, I didn't have to go every day, but here's what I would liken it to. Um, and as you said, like if you haven't done it a whole lot, you probably have a different appreciation level than if you have done it. So like it, it's like a state fair broadcast, right? You have to be there. So if, if you're a radio station, TV station in Minnesota, 
you have to be at the state fair. Like there's no, uh, no matter what it costs, no matter, you know, whether you think you're, you're getting the money, getting the most for your money or what you have to be there because that's where everybody goes. That's where all eyes are going to be. It's, it's a must be at. Uh, and I would say radio row is like that for major radio stations for radio stations in, you know, whatever cities, uh, the, the teams are in, like, you've got to be there because the biggest names come through. You don't want to miss out on it. Whether or not you think, you know, you're, you're spending your money wisely or not, you have to be there. And for someone who had never experienced it before, I thought it was amazing. You know, you're looking around, you're like, Oh, look, that person, that person, like you recognize everybody. Uh, there's just, you know, football players, celebrities, whoever just walking around. And it's like, it's, it's wild, but I can totally understand the people who've been there 30, 40 times and having to sit through it and, and having to deal with the setup. And, you know, we're doing a show and I'm elbow to elbow with another station from, you know, Norfolk, Virginia, who's doing a show and, uh, you're talking over each other and it's loud and it's chaotic and you're trying to chase down guests and pull them over. Like I could totally understand how after a while uh, the allure would, would wear off, but it's one of those things that you have to deal with that because if you want to, you know, have all eyes on you, ears on you, that's one of those places you have to be, which I think is the same way. Like with the state fair, you've got to be out there because there's that many people there that even if you don't think you're making an impression, you are. Who's the most famous person you saw? Oh, man. Uh, Mike Grimm. <laughs> Golden Gopher voice. I saw Mike. I saw Dan Barrero. He's been on the show, uh, so that's a good choice. <laughs> uh, I think, I'm trying to think. I was there at like a weird time. So it was a, it was a, it was maybe like a Tuesday or a Wednesday at like four o'clock. So, you know, all the, the big morning shows, the big mid-afternoon shows had gone. And now you're kind of going into like the drive time shows, but it's also, you know, starting to wind down in terms of like East Coast. So a lot of like the big names were gone. I think maybe Robert Smith, the former Viking, Ohio State running back. Uh, I think I saw him out there. Um, but yeah, I don't, maybe that, that was the biggest name. Okay. So I, another thing I always find interesting is just following the paths of every sportscaster and how they get to where they are. A big decision is usually where they go to school. Do you pick the big broadcast factory like Syracuse or Northwestern where they make lots of great sportscasters, or do you go a smaller school route? You kind of went in between. Uh, You went to the Ohio University. Yes. And I think that's kind of one of those schools that you don't think of but sneakily has quite a few pretty big-name sportscasters. What was the decision to end up going there? Uh, it was twofold, and and there are a couple of broadcasters. I want to say Hacksaw Hamilton uh, went to Ohio University. Um, I think that's right. I know, obviously, Matt Lauer went to Ohio U. Um, uh, Chuck Swirsky of the Chicago Bulls, I believe, was an Ohio U uh, alum as well. So there are a decent amount of, of broadcasters that have come out of that school. Uh, and for me, it was it was a couple of reasons. You know, number one, um, I've got family in Ohio, and so it was kind of an opportunity to uh, be closer to my grandma, be closer to you know some family on my dad's side that I don't really get to see a whole lot. Um, and also, like our family was sort of in transition, where uh, we, with my dad's job, we thought we might be moving to the East Coast, but we weren't sure when that move was going to happen, and. You know, we weren't sure if we were going to stay in in Minnesota or make that move out there. 
So it was sort of like a lot of things were up in the air. And my, my parents are basically like, since we don't know what the situation is going to be long term, go to school wherever you want. Um, and so I went and I looked at schools out east that I thought, you know, okay, as we transition out there, you'd be closer to your family. Um, I looked at schools in the Midwest. And then Ohio University was a school that I've had a couple of uncles, a couple of cousins go to. Uh, one of my uncles ended up on TV in uh, Virginia Beach. And so um, I've gotten to, sh- I got to shadow him when I was in high school. And he is, I mean, that dude bleeds green and white. Like he loves Ohio University. So once I started to, you know, show that I wanted to be in, in media and I was interested in Ohio U, he was like, you got to go to school there. And then we went and toured it and it was, it was just a beautiful, beautiful campus. And uh, I fell in love with, with everything. I mean, from, you know, the, the facilities that we had, the people that we met, uh, where the campus is located, everything. Um, it was just, it turned out to be exactly what I was looking for. You know, like um, some of these other schools, like Ohio State with 60,000 kids. And like, that's that's pretty big, you know, to be dropped in, not knowing anybody. And, and the communications department wasn't uh, where I wanted it to be in terms of what Ohio University had. So, um, it, it really came down to the comfort, the feel, and, and the fact that I'd had so many, uh, relatives go to school there that told me what a great experience it was. And it, it turned out to be that. Yeah. I think that you're unique in the fact that they said, go wherever you want. And you picked uh, <laughs> rural Ohio. <laughs> well, uh, and it also, I mean, you know, when you, when you say go wherever you want, it was also sort of like, go wherever you can get in. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't wasn't like go wherever you want. Uh, you know they have to want you too, <laughs> and that played a role in it. So your first job out of school was in Albert Lee, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it K A T E or is it Kate Radio? Both. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, it was fourteen fifty K A T E, and everybody just called it Kate Radio. Um, it was fantastic. It was a great, great experience. Uh, I laugh because. I had never been further south than like Lakeville in Minnesota. Uh, and all of a sudden I'm going to like do this interview and man, I, f- I felt like I just kept driving and driving and driving. I'm like, where am I going? Uh, and finally got down there and ended up, I interviewed early in the summer. It took until August maybe before things kind of opened up and, and I ended up landing the job and it was like, get a phone call on Wednesday. Hey, can you come back down? We want to do another interview on Thursday. So I go back down Thursday and they're like, okay, you start Monday. It's like, well, okay. So drive back home, pack up all my stuff, uh, drive back down on Sunday and started work Monday. And then football season was off and running. So did you, if you didn't start until August, did you have problems finding a job right out of school? Well, yeah, I mean, I interviewed with those guys and and it was sort of like, hey, we we don't have an opening right now, but we expect to or we may, you know, in the future or something. So I was just hanging on to that. Um, And, you know, I spent time, uh, I was painting houses, I was working, you know, as a busboy at a country club and just like making some money, buying your time. I think you're so naive, or at least I was, that like, of course I'm going to get a job, you know, like. It wasn't a, it wasn't even a thought in my mind that it wasn't going to happen. Um, maybe until like we got into early August and my dad was like, Hey, like, are you going to get a job? I was like, well, I got a couple jobs, but, um, you know, it, it didn't really occur to me until, until a couple months 
you know, removed of being home and like working these odd jobs that I was like, all right, I've got to figure something out. And then it just worked out. Um, you know, it, it, uh, came at a really good time to be able to transition away from, from that stuff and, and just jump right in and get going. So, um, as far as like actively searching, you know, it it was different back then in that, uh, when it was time to look for a job, I just picked up, honestly, it was a Timberwolves media guide and I called every radio station that was part of their network in the back (laughs) and said, hi, you know, are you looking for a sports director? No. Okay. Well, can I send you my stuff anyway, just in case? Sure. Then you go to UPS and you ship off like, uh, whatever, a bunch of resumes and, and CDs and hope that something comes. And it's funny that, you know, if you look at the back of the Timberwolves media guide or used to, uh, it was like Austin, Albert Lee. So I didn't get very far. <laughs> <laughs> I made a lot of phone calls, but uh, the one that called back was like the second one that I called. And, you know, the rest is history. You know, it's interesting that you had to be, if you were sending tapes and packages, you had to be, when you were starting, among probably the last group of people that sent audio in CDs and tapes and packages. And I think we're you're a little bit older than me, but I kind of remember a little bit. I still have a a bag of actual old cassette tapes mm-hmm. that I'd like to listen to someday, but I I can't find a cassette player. How how interesting was it to go through the process of that technological change of just the way that you apply for positions? Well, so <laughs> uh, when I was finishing college, you know, your first two years, I was actually a, vid- a video production major. Um, so I worked on the radio station. Um, I did shows, I did that, but I was also learning the, the TV side of it. Like that interested me as well because you never know, like I could end up in radio. I could end up in TV. Like I wanted to keep my options open. Um, and it was an internship back here my senior year at KFAN where I was like, radio is the way to go. But through my first two and a half years, we were editing everything linear, uh, you know, linear editors where, You'd punch in the start, stop, start, stop, whatever, and then you'd scroll through and then like two tapes and you'd record from one to the other, you know. <laughs> uh, and then my senior year, I remember they, they introduced us to like what's, you know, what was, it was cool edit at the time and whatever the video premiere, something. So suddenly we're like editing on computers. And I'm like, I, I don't have enough time to learn this. Like I'm out of here in, in three months. And so I started to learn that stuff and it was it was really interesting to be to to understand the old school way to do it uh while at the same time being introduced to the newer way to do it and then when I uh got the job in Albert Lee we went way back in that we were still <laughs> recording things on reel to reel and we were putting our commercials on carts and I was like what in the hell is this and they're like it's a cart I was like, I've heard about these things you know <laughs> and next thing you know that's how you had to do it so I was sort of um, I've had the benefit of seeing all different sides of it from, um, you know, the cassettes and, and the videotapes to the digital editing to the old school, uh, cutting and splicing, you know, uh, tape to, to make that kind of stuff go to the carts. Uh, and it's amazing now, I mean, thinking about sending off those, those giant resume packages and now it's like, here's a link to a website. Here's a link to, you know, audio file somewhere. And that's, that's what you need and how much easier it is. And the other cool thing is how you can get so much different stuff on there. You know, if you're like building a a CD, it's, you have to get that stuff on. Then you have to 
print the labels. You have to do all this other stuff. Where it's like now people send me a link and it's like, here's a link to, you know, basketball, football, baseball, audio. Here's a link to video stuff that I do. Here's a link to articles that I've written. And it's all right there as opposed to like opening this giant folder and being like, okay, here's a CD. Here's like a, you know, a VHS tape to pop in or here's a DVD to, to watch. Like now it's just all right there. It makes it, it makes it really, really easy. It almost makes it more competitive just because you don't get the you don't get to weed out the the lazy people who didn't want to go through that much effort. <laughs> I suppose, but you know, at the same time too, all that stuff has has been made so much more accessible, which I think is awesome, right? Like uh before if you wanted to if you wanted to talk sports, well, this is how you did it. You went to this school or you worked at this radio station and you tried to find, you know, an hour on that station to do your show. Not everybody can do that. Now you can work a nine to five and you can still do a podcast and talk sports and, um, you know, cover sports in, in different ways that you couldn't before. And so it gives, I would say more competitive. Yes, but also more opportunity in different avenues. So what were your non broadcasting responsibilities at Albert Lee? I'm, I'm assuming you were not full-time sports at that point. Uh, you know, I, Yes and no. Um, and in Albert Lee, so I was like part of the morning shows, right? So I did sports updates. Um, you just, I was just around a lot. Like I do a five minute sports update and then they just keep me on and we would just like all three of us, four of us, whatever, we just talk for a while. And then eventually I would just leave and come back and do another sports update later. Um, I had a board shift where we did, I want to say it was called the trading post. <laughs> and so it was essentially like reading the classifieds, you know, people would call in and you're not really in radio until you've done some variation of trading post or an auction show. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was, that was, uh, an interesting, like part of my board shift was doing that. Um, I did do a sports talk show, um, which, you know, was, it was interesting kind of getting that feel for it, especially like, you know, I'm coming into it thinking we're going to be talking like the biggest national stories, but really the people of Albert Lee wanted to hear what was happening in Albert Lee. They they could listen to whatever, uh, to hear opinions about that kind of stuff. So that was, there was, you know, a lot of learning through that, but, um, and then at night we did, we did games, you know, and we did as many games as possible. I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot going on. I wasn't married. I didn't have, you know, a whole, you know, I didn't have anything, um, really outside of, of work because it, I was new to the town. You didn't know anybody when you first got there. So I just jumped into games. Like that's what I wanted to do. And, and they were like, I said, well, how many games do we do? Like how many can you do? Uh, and so we went out and we did as many as, as possible. And we tried to make them bigger and you're, you know, constantly listening to, uh, how, how do the twins do it? How do the wild do it? How do the wolves do it? How do the Vikings do it? What can we like learn from them and do on this high school level. And, you know, it's funny to go back and listen to some of those games because we do some of that stuff now on the Wolves and Lynx radio broadcast. You know, it's a similar kind of setup. Um, and it's all, you know, we, we tried to do, we tried to make it as big sounding as, as we possibly could. And I think, you know, by the end of, of my time there, we, we got to a point where it was like, man, these, these sound professional, you know? I do. At least I hope I do. <laughs> if you hear the the clip that I posted from my college one that I put on that podcast with Katie, you wouldn't think so. But 
So after that, you went to northern Michigan to do hockey and volleyball and just kind of fill in for the rest of the stuff. Yeah. What was the break that led to that? Kind of interesting. Um, I went up there and interviewed for the job. I thought the interview process went really well. Um, It was so it was kind of a twofold job in that you were working for a cluster of radio stations. It was like a five group station, I think, and covering the university. So it wasn't working for the university solely. It was, you know, kind of split between. Um, so I thought the interview at the, at the radio station went well. I thought the, you know, getting to meet the the athletic director, the SID, the, all the folks over at the university went really well. It's feeling really good about it. And then they called me on Monday and said, sorry, we're going to go with someone else. And I was pretty bummed. Like, I thought everything worked out really well. Um, so that was... You know, you, you go through the rest of the week, kind of bummed out, kind of trying to figure out, okay, like I remember the place I was I was living at the time, I had to move, so all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, now I got to find a place to live, and uh, so it wasn't a great week, you know, and then Friday morning of, of that same week, at about 5 o'clock in the morning, I got a call from Northern Michigan, and they were like, hey, uh, remember that job that we said you didn't get? And I said, yeah. They were like, well, the guy that we offered it to... Turns out he he can't make it work. He's not going to be able to come. So if you're still interested, we'd like to offer you that job. Uh, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. So it was, you know, it was. I stumbled across it. Uh, I stumbled across the job initially on like sdaatalent.com, I believe, was where I found it way back in like 2000. Man, it must have been 2005, maybe, um, 2006, and. You know, that was where I saw it, made the first initial calls and everything, and then ended up not getting it and getting it four or five days later. <laughs> That's uh, perfect evidence of why you shouldn't ever have a temper tantrum when someone tells you <laughs> no. Uh, but you were only there for about a year, uh, and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan is a unique place. What was life like in the UP? It was awesome. Um, and, and the reason I was only there for a year was mainly, you know, as we kind of went through that first year, uh, our station wasn't sure if they were going to retain the rights moving forward. And one of the big reasons, I mean, the, the whole reason why I went there was to to get into the college game, to to call college athletics. And so I was thinking, you know, living in the UP and having to call high school stuff wasn't really what I w- was signed on for. Um, and then it just so happened that, you know, the opportunity with the Wolves presented itself at the same time that the station was talking about possibly not uh, renewing after that second year. So it was just timing was was really the big thing. But, man, the UP was awesome. Um, I love northern Minnesota. We've got a cabin um, up around the Boundary Waters. And so being able to live up there so close to Lake Superior, so close to the mountains, getting to trail run, getting a mountain bike, getting to, you know, spend your time. Uh, doing some real fun stuff outdoors was fantastic. Uh, the snow was unbelievable. Uh, that year we got, I want to say like 253 inches of snow <laughs> with like 53 of it coming during the Masters. Um, so that was, I've never experienced anything like that. Like the amount of snow that came down during the Masters and it just wouldn't stop. And I lived like at the top of this hill that basically dead ended in, in Lake Superior. And so you had the lake effect snow and it would just come and just sit over this hill. And it was, it was unbelievable. Um, but it was, it was really cool. I mean, I learned a lot about covering college athletics. Uh, and there's a big difference in stepping from high school to college, 
Um, and, and so it was, a, it was a tremendous learning experience and, you know, met a bunch of people that, uh, that I still stay in touch with and that are still, you know, friends today. And, and then the opportunity to come back home and, and take the Wolves job appeared in October of, of 2007. And it was just too good to pass up with, you know, the future being uncertain up there. You know, you've mostly talked about doing basketball play-by-play, mm-hmm. and that's obviously what you do now. Did you have hockey tape at that point, or where so, did you get it? Well, I was lucky in that, like I said, in Albert Lee, we did as many games as we possibly could. So we were doing boys hockey. We were doing girls hockey. Uh, we had a great run um, two or three years in a row of getting to the state tournament and, and getting to call games at that level. And at the same time, uh, from 2005, the 2005-2006, no, is that right? Yeah, 2005-2006 NHL season, I worked part-time for the Minnesota Wild with Kevin Fulness. So I would drive up from Albert Lee on like Wednesdays and Saturdays or something and run the board for those guys, help them cut up highlights. And so you were around the game and, um, you know, getting a chance to, to meet Bob Kurtz, to meet uh, Tom Reed and I had Bob listen to my hockey stuff and you know give me some pointers and Bob was a Michigan State guy uh, who called me and Michigan State was in the same conference as, as NMU and um, so those guys were tremendous resources in learning about the game understanding the game and making my hockey better. So what was the connection or the break that ended up getting you the producer job for the Minnesota Timberwolves because as you mentioned that was where you went next uh, take us through the process of how that happened. Uh, I, we were in like we we're at Grand Valley State or something with NMU. It was like Ferris State or Grand Valley State for a football series, and I got a call from Chad Abbott, who uh, is is the executive producer at KFAN, who is somebody I've known a really long time, known his family a really long time, and he just said, "Hey, I just want to let you know that the Wolves are looking for a producer. I don't know what your situation is, but if you're interested, you know, here's a number to call." And I mean, I, I called Chad, he probably doesn't even know this, but I call him like my career angel um, <laughs> because he he was a guy who I contacted and got the internship with at KFAN. Um, he helped me get in with the Minnesota Wild. He was the one who let me know that the Wild were looking for somebody. And so Chad has just um, played a big role in kind of opening some doors for me at times where, you know, you, you needed those doors open and, and you couldn't open them yourself. So, uh, and I know Chad's done that with a lot of people. I mean, he's, he's a tremendous person, obviously, uh, does great work with, with KFAN and has for a really, really long time. Um, but you know, for me personally, there's a lot of moments that I look back on my career and Chad played a huge, huge role in opening those doors, making a connection and, or completing a connection uh, and, you know, you're just forever grateful for somebody who who was that open and that giving. So you didn't get to do the links right away. Alan Horton was mm-hmm. doing them at that time. How did you keep your play-by-play sharp while you were employed as solely a producer? Just trying to do everything, um, whether it was high school games, whether it was D3 college games. If you had a free night, you know, working uh, with some of those schools, some of those guys, uh, Tom Witchin, of course, of TJ Sports Broadcast, uh, opened up a lot of doors and in, in opportunities to call those games. And then, you know, every once in a while, Alan would have something come up and he would have to step aside. And it was like, all right, let's just step in and go. Um, sure, you know, I'm rusty. But um, the other thing, too, is you've got to remember, like during that time, well, I might not have been calling a whole lot of games. 
I was listening nonstop because 82 nights a year I listen to Alan Horton call an NBA game, and 34 nights a year I listen to him call WNBA games. So you're you're constantly listening. You're constantly um, learning and, you know, thinking, well, okay, like that was really awesome how he called that. Maybe I could, like, call it that way or learn something that way or um, how he worked this stat into that call. Like, that's something. So it was, you know, I don't know, maybe by osmosis, but you're just constantly being able to listen, learn. Um, that really, you know, I, I think that helped me stay sharp. Obviously, it's not calling games, but it wasn't like I hadn't listened or I hadn't been around it for a really long time. And then Tom Hanneman, too. I mean, Tom's office was down here for a long, long time and getting to talk to Tom and watch how both those guys prepare. And then when I did get the opportunity in 2012 to take over um, doing the, the road games, it was like I could go to either of those guys and say, hey, you know, can I see your boards? What what do you have on your boards? What are some of the things that, um, you know, that, that you think are important for this? What are some websites that you use? Um, and those guys were incredibly giving of their time and, and information to help, uh, you know, help me prepare better, which, you know, I think then allows you to go out and feel a lot more comfortable. So when you're producing someone for an 82-game NBA schedule and a 32-game WNBA schedule, do you notice yourself starting to sound more similar in style to Alan Horton than you did at the beginning? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think you'd probably have to ask somebody else who listens, you know, like how how closely we sound. I think there are certain things that I, I definitely have picked up from him. Um, but I think, too, you know, I, I stay true to kind of how, how I've always done it. Um, but there's definitely things that I've learned from him um, that I think do kind of work their way in, whether I know it or not. You know what I mean? Um, whether it's, uh, you know, certain phrases that he has that like Alan's Alan's good at. He's got he's a great economy for words. Right. So rather than saying like so and so drives to the basket and uh, steps around the defender and gets to uh, close enough to make a, a whatever, like a finger roll. Like that's that's a lot of words to be saying. Alan will say something like scoop to the hoop. You know, and and I'm sure that a lot of other people use that too, uh, but he's the one that I remember hearing it from, and it's just a great. That's three words as opposed to trying to you know script out all this other stuff, and, and so little things like that, learning from how he would describe something, and even I remember coming back from a road trip once and being like, "Man, here's this play that happened. It was a Lindsey Whalen play, and I'm trying to remember what exactly the play was, but." I described it to him and I was like, how in the world would you describe that? And so we like brought up the video, we watched it and Alan's like, here's how I would describe it. And I was like, okay, well then that gives me a frame of reference because it was like a move I'd never seen before. Um, and, and so he's- Do you remember how he told you to describe it? Not really. Um, <laughs> I bet if it, if it happened again, I probably would. But since I can't quite remember exactly what the move was- um, but I just remember having that conversation with him and being like, well, here's how I would describe it. Being like, huh, okay. Like, that's a great frame of reference. That's a great starting point for if I do see it again, I'm not going to stumble so much. I can just be like, oh, yeah, start here and go, you know? So the first time you got to fill in for a Timberwolves broadcast, and you're— There have only been two. No, three. When was the first time? Uh, it was in 2008— Probably like late February, 
and just what was going through your mind. Uh, first of all, what were the events that led up to it? Because <laughs> sometimes those are good stories. Uh, and what was going through your mind as you're like, I finally, it's not permanent, but I finally made it where I wanted to be. Um, so that was our first year. 2007, 2008 was our first year. So it was in the you know the back half of that first season. And we were exhausted. I mean, both of us. Alan and I started within a week or two of each other. I was coming from Michigan. Um, I started on a Monday. We had a preseason game on Tuesday. The season started the next Wednesday. You know, and it was like, go, figure it out. And for Alan, the same way, he he got signed late as well. And so both of us were just kind of like, A, trying to survive an 82-game season, trying to get up to speed on, on everything that happens. I mean, 82 games, if you haven't done it before, it's it's a bear of a season, especially when you're coming off like both of us were. Uh, he was coming off a WNBA season. I was coming off uh, NMU football, volleyball, and the beginning of hockey with no break, you know, right into this. Um, and Alan ended up getting sick. Like, he just got a bad case of the flu. I think it was uh, Monday. He, he called our boss at the time and was like, I don't know if this is going to work. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. The boss was scrambling a little bit. I was like, hey, I've got experience. Like, I'm ready to go. Uh, and he's like, well, I got to clear it with everybody else. And so long story short, I remember I got home from work on, on Monday at, I don't know, 530 or something. And he called and was like, the Charlotte game is yours. And on Tuesday, the Charlotte game is yours. I was like, oh, my gosh. So I immediately like ran downstairs. I was living in my parents' house because I didn't even have time to look for an apartment when I came back from Michigan. <laughs> it was just like I landed there and tried to survive that first season. And my parents had dial-up internet, you know, and this <laughs> this old printer that printed and you had to tear the pages. <laughs> okay? So and <laughs> so I sprint downstairs and I'm like, I got to get roster sheets. I got to start working on, on boards and everything. And it's taking so long to load. And, you know, I finally like got to the page and I printed this stuff off and then I go to tear it and it's tearing like right through the middle of it because it wasn't printing on the the pages. And I was finally just like by the 830 at night or whatever, nothing was working. Um, I was like, all right, I'm done. I just like went to bed, got up at like five o'clock in the morning, came in here where we had normal printers, we had normal everything and started working, did that game. Uh, and it was unbelievably exhausting, right? Like, uh, there was such an emotion of, you know, you're, you're trying to be perfect. You're trying to make sure you don't screw up. We had this great, uh, we had an analyst at the time, Billy McKinney, who's just a great, great guy. And Billy was helping to like guide me through everything. Um, it was, it was an unbelievable experience. I think we lost by like 30 or something. Uh, but I, I don't really like, I know we lost bad, but to me, it was like the greatest game that ever been played (laughs) in the history of the NBA. And then I came home Wednesday, uh, the team team was leaving. Maybe that was a Wednesday game they were leaving and had a, uh, they had a game at Utah. And Allen was on that trip. Like he drove out to the airport, he got on the flight. But he was so sick that that Utah game was the second end of a back-to-back that they called me in the afternoon and they're like, hey, Allen can't go tonight. So we're going to simulcast the TV on the radio which you can imagine was amazing because you had Tom Hanneman, Jim Peterson, and Billy McKinney doing a TV game while at the same time doing a radio game. Um, And that was interesting because it it was just super challenging. Um, And so we we survived that Utah game, and I had a flight at like 5 o'clock the next morning. 
to Sacramento where I met up with the team and then did the weekend Friday, Saturday series of the Sacramento Kings and the LA Clippers. You brought up something that I want to follow up on and it's, it happens when you're on, on the road or on some sort of short notice or back to back game situation where you can't do a lot of your prep until really late the night before potentially. Mm -hmm. And I've, the first couple of times I had those, I remember staying up really late till like three or four, just getting everything I could, and the broadcast not being very good because I was just tired and not alert. And when I tried it, you know, if I go to bed by midnight or one, and you don't have quite as much prep, but most of that stuff you don't even use, what is your thought on staying up late to prep versus just getting a good night's sleep and calling a good game? I'm not a night owl. So staying up late is like never part of what I like to do. Um, I would much rather get up early. Um, I can I can just function better. Like I, I prefer to get in early. I prefer to get my work done early. Um, and that's that's just kind of how I operate. So like a lot of the time, um, I'll work until maybe 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock on the road. Um, once I get to a certain point where you know you're like, okay, I'm good. And then I'll get up early and like kind of how I structure my day, it'll be like get a run in or something in the morning before shoot around, get back to your hotel and you've got maybe an hour where you start to, you know, catch up on what happened the night before. So um, I know this year we had a lot of situations where uh, everybody in terms of like scoring, field goal percentage, all these things, the the top 10 was constantly changing. The leaderboard was constantly changing. So in that time period, you just update kind of some of that stuff. You get over to shoot around, you get your stuff there. Um, but for me, it's I would much rather work early in the morning than try to stay up late at night because I, I get tired <laughs> and and it just doesn't work well for me. So when you were working for the Timberwolves and doing filling and mm-hmm. being the producer, when Alan Horton decided to just focus on the Timberwolves and no longer do the links, was it just, uh, okay, we're moving you up, or was it a nerve-wracking process where you had to go through interviews, or how did that process work out? Uh, it was it was very much of, you know, Alan and I discussed it. Um, he was going to go in and, and bring it up when he went in for his contract negotiation, and obviously, like, he checked with me, you know, do you is this something you want? Like, if we're going to pitch this, <laughs> you have to be on board. Um, and he went in and pitched it and the bosses talked to me and they were like, are you interested? I said, absolutely. Um, it was a, it was a waiting period, I think, to make sure that everybody was on board. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the process was like. I obviously, I, you know, I was busy with the wolves and season didn't start and, you know, for another couple of months or whatever. So it was like, when it's time I'm ready, uh, when, whenever it is. And, you know, eventually that all worked itself out. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, um, it wasn't like the NMU situation where you go out and you, you do the interview and then you find out you didn't get the job and then you did get it later. Uh, it was a lot different just in terms of like, you know, and, and Cal Soderquist here who's helping us with the recording. Um, Cal was a part of that as well because Cal's been working side by side with me for five or six years now. And so in order to make the whole thing work, we had to have somebody who could slide in and do my job. And so as, you know, Alan stepped away from doing that, I stepped up to it. We were able to move Cal right in um, to fill in my role of uh, producing and, and hosting halftime and postgame and stuff like that. So it was kind of like, you know, once everybody got on board with it, we were able to just kind of shift chairs and 
that's what we do every summer. We we all, you know, musical chairs, and then come the fall, Alan comes back in, and we all musical chairs right back. So what makes a good producer? He's a good producer. Um, radio producing is a lot different, I think, than TV producing. Um, you know, obviously TV producing, you're coming up with these video packages, and you're coming up with different, like, numbers and um, if they're at the free throw line, okay, we're going to put up this graphic. You know, there's a lot involved, a lot more involved, I should say, in being a TV producer. Radio producer, I think I'm fortunate in that um, having been a play-by-play and, and doing play-by-play, I understand what Alan needs. Alan has also sat in my chair and been a studio host and producer uh, as well as a play-by-play guy, so Alan knows what I need. Um, Cal obviously has worked with both of us for a really long time, so he kind of knows how to work around us, through us, and, and so on. So I think it's just it's communication and it's just understanding and being on the same page. Um, you know, when we go into a broadcast, uh, I get Alan the things that if I was doing the game, I would want. And when Alan's on the road and I'm not there, he gets me the things that I need to put together a, a good studio show because um, he just understands that. So it's understanding storylines. It's understanding the league. It's also understanding uh, just stories, you know, like we might have second end of a back to back. You're not going to have a shoot around. You're playing a team that, that is really struggling. There's not a lot of great storylines there. Um, but you know, do you have, uh, interviews that you can use with players that sort of tell the story of who those players are? And that would be a compelling, I just swallowed a bug. (laughs) We're leaving that in. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, but you know what I mean? Like telling the story of those players as opposed to, um, you know, a game that maybe doesn't have the great uh, basketball on-court storylines. Do you have stuff that, that tells the storylines of these players, of these coaches, of, of this kind of stuff? So I think it's really just, especially on the radio side, you know, Alan and I are, are in communication a lot in terms of what, what I need, what he needs, you know, what we have. There's sometimes where he's he's like sitting there at a free throw talking about, you know, this player has done such and such. And I know that we got him a soundbite from coach or from somebody talking about exactly that. So we'll pop in his ear and be like, hey, you know, highlight or soundbite, whatever. And he'll play that soundbite to accompany it. Um, but we do a good job, I think, of getting out in front of stuff and getting that sound to him. And then he organizes it and he plays it himself off his own laptop. Um, so he knows, you know, our, our work is a lot at shoot around at practice, getting stuff, streamlining it, getting it to him. And then a lot of the time he plays it. Covering women's sports, obviously at the WNBA level, the skill level is about the same. The speed may not be quite what it is, but what I've always wondered is when you're describing body types and, you know, if there was... You know, Big Baby Davis, you talk about, you know what, he's uses his girth and wide body to get position and uses that to be a good basketball player. I've always, at least at the high school and college level, tried to avoid those type of um, descriptors in the women's game. Do you agree with that? Do you do that? Um, I don't know. To be honest, like thinking back, um, I mean, you use, you know, you use phrases like backs her way down and, and whatever, throws an elbow. Like, I don't know. I guess I, I don't I don't believe that I do, but I don't know that it's a conscious, um, you know, that it's a conscious decision or anything like that. It's much more 
just trying to call things within the flow of the game as as they're happening and um, staying true to you know that to that to 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 what's happening. I mean, um, if somebody's out there and they've got you know tattoos up and down the arm, you're going to say like uh, right-handed dribble got the tattoos up and down the arm or whatever. Like there's a player from Chicago as you're trying to like paint the picture of what they're seeing that wears like clear Oakley sunglasses, you know. So you're gonna you're going to put those descriptors in there. Um, but I, I, as far as that goes, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think I do. And, and if I don't, it's not a conscious decision. What I've heard about covering the WNBA compared to the NBA is that largely because, you know, the travel is maybe not quite as glamorous. You're around the team a lot more mm-hmm. and that you get a lot closer to the team. I guess how much, does that maybe enhance the enjoyment of broadcasting a WNBA team because you can get to know those players so well? I think it really does make a difference because you you develop a comfort level with the players. They understand, um, you know, that what what you're trying to do, and they'll tell you, you know, their story. Now, at the same time, like you're never going to go in and be like, "All right, what adjustments are you going to make?" and like expect to get inside baseball type stuff, but. Um, you you certainly developed a different relationship in that the players feel comfortable talking to you. In turn, um, you get better stuff uh, from the players. So um, I, I definitely think, you know, especially I've been so fortunate with this WNBA team. I mean, from the coaching staff to all of the players, like Cheryl sets sets an example of, listen, we're a family. and And when we're on the road, we're together. Uh, this is how we do things. And so you always feel a part of it. You feel a part of the team. Um, and you get to know the players. And, you know, obviously you see what they go through in terms of that travel, in terms of where they're practicing, those types of things. And your appreciation level for what they do on the court just grows and grows and grows. And what I think uh, Cheryl does so so good, she's all about growing the game. And by helping to educate me, as a broadcaster and and the players too. I mean, the players teach you as much as as the coaching staff uh, by educating me. Then that allows me to communicate what's happening and educate the fan base. Then in turn, you get a smarter fan base that looks at things in a different light than just wins and losses, whatever you know. Uh, but you just keep growing the game and telling those stories. And uh, Cheryl does a tremendous job of of building that family type atmosphere of educating me. Uh, as as do the players, and that allows you to communicate what's happening in, in a way that you probably didn't before. One of the things that I've been putting quite a bit of thought into recently is how I'm represented on social media. Mm-hmm. And since probably, I don't know, the last probably eight years maybe, I've been pretty careful, but I was also, I just did a big social media purge because when it started, it was all college kids. And you know what? We talked like college kids. And with all the the baseball players having people dug up from their past and movie directors and everyone, I'm just like, I don't ever want that to happen to me. So I just deleted a ton of stuff. Have you ever looked back on that? Or how? what is your philosophy on how you handle social media? Uh, my philosophy is, I mean, just like anything. And has it changed over time? No, because it wasn't, I mean, I'm dating myself probably, but it wasn't a thing when I was in college. It wasn't a thing, you know, until a couple of years after I got out of college that 
I mean, I I remember a buddy of mine like helping me set up a Facebook account while I was working in Albert Lee. And I was like, what is this? And he's like, no, it's really cool. Like everybody's on this, but I just didn't really use it. So I had it for a long time, but I just didn't really use it. Um, I started a Twitter account back in, I don't know, maybe 2009. Um, but again, I didn't really use it until kind of learned more about it. So yeah, I look at all that stuff is the same way you look at yourself when you walk down the street and that you represent yourself, you represent your family, you represent the organizations that you're affiliated with. And how would you like those viewed in the public sphere? You know, um, you would want them viewed positively. So you will represent yourself positively. Um, and, and so I, that's just kind of how I've, I've always looked at it. And that's how I've tried to use it, you know, use my social accounts is, you know, information, uh, using my social accounts personally to, you know, uh, provide information, to provide links, to provide uh, things that, um, you know, maybe fans don't necessarily have, whether it's behind the scenes photos, whether it's, um, you know, links to certain articles that I've come across, that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I don't use them necessarily in a way that's, um, you know, uh, all about hot takes and opinions and, and things like that. That's just not really uh, how I use those those spaces. And there was nothing like malicious in mind, but there was a lot of uh, <laughs> like I grew at Morningside College. It's on the border of Nebraska and Iowa. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of just Nebraska and Iowa smack talk. And, oh, sure. And I'm like, you know what? Someday I may want to work at the University of Iowa. <laughs> and I don't want this. I don't want someone to dig this up and have something like that hold me back. I yeah. mean, that's a very specific thing that will probably never happen, but you just never know. And it's mm-hmm. just not worth saving well, it's it just, for the record. Isn't it crazy? Like, um, how, how big of a role that now plays in what we do? I mean, whether you. You think, all right, uh, you know, I'm in radio. Well, that's great, but you also have to be, I mean, you don't have to, but it really helps bring more people to your broadcast if you're tweeting during commercial breaks, letting people know what's happening, where they can listen, Um, you know, behind the scenes photos. Like uh, I started doing keys to the game and starters and kind of like, you know, images from shoot around, stuff like that on my Instagram page these last two years. And it's amazing how how much that's grown with very little publicity behind it, you know. But um, fans want to consume everything, and and they do it from all these different platforms. And it's just wild to think that, you know, back in the day, all you did was radio. And now doing radio is a piece of all these other things that you do, um, you know, to, to connect with your audience. One of the things that I saw when I was just digging through your personal website and looking at your resume that mm-hmm. that that I wanted to talk about it says you are a comedy actor. Yeah. What comedy acting are you doing? Uh well, I don't do it anymore. Uh I should probably take that off. Um <laughs> but it was when I was in college we did um uh there was a bunch of different like, you know, f- uh it was like Saturday night live type shows that that we did, but they were we called them Fridays live. Um, just did a bunch of different kind of comedy stuff. There was live stage comedy where we put together skits and um, did stuff like that. We at one point had like an internet comedy radio station, but this was like in the early stages of the internet. And so it was like, you know, nobody could listen to it. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, I, I absolutely love comedy. I love uh, I mean, comedy movies. I love watching stand-up, listening to stand-up, going to stand-up. Um, I really enjoyed doing a lot of that stuff. 
Um, and some of those guys that, that I was in this group with, you know, have gone on and are like actual comedians and stuff. I saw one of them one day I was watching, uh, remember that show workaholics? Yes. So I was watching like one scene from that and I was, I was at a buddy's place watching it and all of a sudden they like passed through some, some guy, whatever. And I was like, wait a minute. I know that guy, like pause it. <laughs> and so we rewound it and I was like, oh my God, I swear I went to college with this guy. And then we watched the credits and sure enough, it was a guy that I was in one of these groups with that after we graduated, like a, a couple of those guys went out to LA and tried to make it work. And, you know, here it is. I mean, geez, like 14, 15 years later, he's showing up in an episode of Workaholics. So um, they were, they were a lot of fun. Um, I don't do it anymore. I haven't done it probably since then, but um, it was it was fun writing and fun like kicking around the ideas and stuff like that. So if I said give us one of your best jokes, you couldn't do it right now? Oh, probably not. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's been too long, too long for that. What is your broadcast horror story or stories where sometime when you were in the UP or I actually have one from the UP that I'll mm-hmm. tell you later, but or uh, in southern minnesota really could be anywhere where something just went horribly wrong in a way that was mortifying at the time but that you can look back at and laugh at now well i mean uh, i'll go to madison square garden last year um we've run into this a couple of times on the WNBA side but um i do all our engineering so that means i bring our equipment i set it up uh, i work with a number of great people around the league that help me with connections, help me make sure everything is where it should be. Um, but sometimes you just run into things that are unavoidable, you know? So we were trying to go through, uh, the NBA has these IP networks. And so we are just going to link in just like we were doing a, a Wolves game. And I talked to the folks out there. Everybody was on board. We show up and it was like an afternoon game. So it was like a two o'clock game. They're still in the process of getting the arena set up and everything. And I sit down and try to plug in and, and it's busy. And so Cal's trying to connect to the to the New York units from here, and nothing was coming through. Can't figure out what it is. So I call somebody, and they're like, oh, it appears that somebody who used that last just never disconnected. And so I'm at Madison Square Garden. I'm seated courtside next to the ESPN broadcast. We're on not like the court side or not like the scorer's table, but like the cameras are going to see us. You know, there's nobody in front of us. It's just this table. And I mean, we are running. I went to places in Madison Square Garden that no one will ever go uh, <laughs> to try and find this broadcast closet. I found it. Uh, I told this guy, like, look, I have the same unit. If you just unplug it and plug it back in, we're going to be fine. But he couldn't do that because he wasn't part of the group that, that put this in. And so he's not allowed to touch it. Like, there's all these rules. And I'm like, well, can you, like, step out of this closet? I'll step in and do it. And the whole time I'm looking at my watch, like, we got to go, you know, like I've got a broadcast to do. I haven't gotten anything set up. Um, all my equipment's like laid out on the, on the table. None of it's put together because I've been running around trying to chase this thing down. So in the end, we can't do anything. And I have to call the game on my cell phone, sitting courtside at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> um, and, and the same thing happened uh, for a playoff game in Los Angeles against the Sparks back in, I think it was 2015, where at Long Beach State University, and there was some firewall protection on the university's internet that wouldn't allow me to connect um, to our IP back here. And the worst part about that was it was, again, an ESPN broadcast. And every time they scanned, 
there's me sitting courtside. <laughs> and like we didn't have stats monitors like this. It was a train wreck. Like nothing was working. And I'm just sitting courtside on my phone. And everyone's like, what are you doing? You know, like who is this clown who paid all this money for courtside seats and just sits there <laughs> on his phone? Um, but yeah, I mean, those, those things happen every once in a while. And it's, it's super frustrating. Um, your ear hurts really bad. <laughs> Uh, later that afternoon, but you know, I guess it's all kind of part of it and I can laugh now, but man, at the time I wasn't laughing. You were just like, <laughs> you know, the world's most famous arena and I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. Oh, that's fantastic. What is your preparation process? Walk us through, uh, the, your routine leading up to a Lynx game. I mean, first thing you, you update all your stuff. So you know, obviously with your links boards, I've got all these different numbers um, that, that we've been tracking for a long time. I mean, with, with that team, they're numbers that we've been tracking since 2011 when they started this run. And I mean, some of those numbers are absurd. So you go through last game's box score, you update all those numbers. Um, you go through and update, you know, players last game, uh, season, career, start to look at what are some of the trends. Have they hit, um, you know, five of their last seven three-pointers over the last three games and start putting those little things in, uh, things that might be relevant. And you do the exact same thing for the opposing team. And then I really like to read. You know, I think that's that's really a big part of my preparation because um, especially on the WNBA side, there's not a whole lot of, you know, I can't, like on the NBA side, I can just go to a team website and you can listen to the practice sound. You can kind of hear what's going on with the team, um, kind of get up to speed. But on the WNBA side, there's not a lot of that. So you try to read as much as you can, whether it's, um, you know, from folks like Howard Megdahl and High Post Hoops and Hoopism and all these uh, different blogs that, that have people in these cities that report on these teams. Um, you, you can learn some things from that. I like to go back and watch the team's last broadcast, um, sometimes a full game, sometimes a half game, whatever you have time for, um, just to get a feel for what what it looks like when they're out there. Like, what are they running? Not that I can sit there and be like, oh, okay, when they tap their elbow, they're going to run this play. But what sets do they like to be in? You know, if they've got a big center, do they like that center in the in the low post? Do they put her in the high post? Do they pass out of it? Just things that, that I can be aware of. So it's not like, um, you know, you say you've got a big 6'8 center, but she operates from the high post and passes a lot. And so you but you don't know that. And so you think, well, why aren't they in the post? Like get them in the post. Like that's just how they run things. And so I think it, it gives you a good feel for kind of uh, what's going on. And so I update both my boards and then I put together like two sheets. And one of the sheets is just sort of like what the all-time series is. What's the last five, seven games? What's the last whatever between these two teams? What are some milestones that might be coming up? Some things that um, I need to keep aware of in the event that so-and-so hits hits a certain mark. Um, what were their last couple of games like in terms of, you know, have they dropped uh, four out of their last seven? Well, what are their numbers during that span? What are their numbers overall? And then on, you know, the last sheet, it's it's pretty much like season numbers um, for the team and their ranks within the league. And that stuff, sometimes you get to it, sometimes you don't. Um, but it's just, you know, it helps you kind of build an idea of what to look for uh, when when you do sit down to do that game. I read in interview and I don't know where it was, but that you said something that I thought was interesting. 
And I don't think I've ever thought of the way to put this into words, but when you're covering a team, your preparation is just kind of layered on through experience, mm-hmm. and you can add different things throughout the year. Is, is that something consciously that you do and focus on, or is it just something that happens organically? Um, I think it's something that you 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 get a feel for it, right? Like, And, and not just a team, but the league. I mean— I remember my first year doing every single game and just being like overwhelmed, you know, like I I was used to doing half the games where I had three, four days, you know, between games to prepare for the next one. And I could kind of take my time and, and build that out. And that helped build a base. But, um, that first year, 2015, when you're doing every single game, it was like, Whoa, like this is a lot. And I don't have nearly as much time to, uh, to prepare this stuff. Then the following year, I'd been through it. I knew what these players looked like. I knew these backstories. Um, we had a little bit more time in 2016 leading into that season where you know I was able to build like these, these profiles for every player that I wanted to do um, in 2015 I didn't get to. And then once you understand those things, then you just keep layering, you know, each year you just layer more on top of it. Um, you know, especially uh, like with our players, we've had the same group for the last however many years, you know, since 2010. Um, and so you hear these stories, you learn these stories from from conversations you've had, from interviews, um, you know, uh, you remember certain plays and you mark them down and maybe, you know, it's like uh, one word or something that reminds you um, of something. But yeah, I think I think that's a huge I think it's a huge asset and it's one of the reasons why like when you think about do you want to be the the national game of the week guy or do you want your team? Like what would you choose? I think I would want a team. Yeah, I I that's exactly it. Like obviously the national game of the week guy, uh you get the best game, you get the biggest game, you're on the biggest stage, all those those great things, but you miss out on that day-to-day understanding of who these players are of where they've come from, of what they've been through, all those things. And you've been through it as well. And there's things that you remember uh, that you, you know, little things that will help you in a certain situation. Like I remember being out in uh, uh, Indiana and it was a, it was game three of the WNBA finals. My Moore hit that game winning shot. And, you know, as you're like sitting there, I remember back in, uh, maybe it was, 2011 or 2010 Simone Augustus it must have been whatever 2011 2012 something Augustus uh Simone Augustus had a game winning shot in Indiana from like the you know right baseline um at the same end that the links were inbounding into so as you see him set up in the formation it's like okay and a reminder a couple of years ago Simone Augustus had a game winner from right here and Lindsey Whalen had one on the same floor from over here which you know, you remember those things. And maybe if you just come in on the national level and that game was so obscure and it happened in the regular season, you know, four or five years ago, you don't remember those things. But as a play-by-play guy who's with and around the same team year in and year out, those are little things that you do remember. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to on a day off? Um, Obviously, Alan Horton. I listen to him not on days off and on days (laughs) off. I always say this about Alan, man. I, I've listened to like probably over a thousand of his broadcasts, right? And I've never gotten bored. Like Alan brings something different to the table every single game. He's got, yeah, he's got numbers that he tracks. He's got stories that he tracks. Um, he, he is an incredible linguist in that 
he will figure out if you are from uh, some town in Europe or whatever, he'll figure out the exact right way to pronounce that town and then say it that exact way with the accent and everything. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly entertaining. Alan, Alan does an amazing job. I've um, always really enjoyed his broadcast and you learn stuff too. I mean, Alan's really good about, you know, finding ways to work in advanced stats, which isn't easy to do on radio. Um, but he finds a way to do it. Brian Wheeler of the Portland Trailblazers is, I think, one of the best. He's got, first off, he's got an incredible voice. It's this, I, I can't even imitate it, but it's this, it's this deep, um, I don't even know what the accent would be, but he's the boom chakalaka, you know, he's, uh, he's got all sorts of funny, funny phrases. And I just remember John Kuster, this is a long, long time ago. John Kuster was a coach of the Detroit Pistons and Portland went on a run and Kuster came out on the phone and called the timeout and wheels. is like, and he's so mad. He could chew through a rope. Like what? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I don't either, but it was awesome. You know? And, um, he's, uh, he's just got a great presence on the radio and you know, when they win, his thing is always, it's a great day to be a blazer. Like it's just, it's a fun, uh, he's got, he's, he has a lot of fun with it. It's, it's really fun to listen to. Um, along with that, Brian Seaman, who was with the Minnesota Timberwolves. He was a longtime Lynx guy. He's down with the LA Clippers. Brian is amazing. If, if you listen to a Brian, Brian Seaman broadcast, um, he's, he's so quick with everything. He's got incredible phrasing, um, just a, a really unique way of describing certain things. Like I remember one time I was, I was streaming them here cause we were cutting up highlights and I had the Clippers game on TV and I'm like working on something else and just kind of got it in one ear. And all of a sudden he's like, Blake Griffin, saloon doors, two defenders gets to the hoop and scores. And I was like, <laughs> what? And then I looked up cause I was like, what the hell is he talking about? And Blake Griffin, like, spun, split a double team, and scored. He saloon-doored two defenders, you know, the saloon doors that swing open, swing closed. I was like, wow, like, that's an incredible, to come up with that, I mean, obviously, like, he's, he's said it before, but to have that in the back of your mind, to see that happen and be able to go to it so quickly, uh, just absolutely incredible. And Brian, Brian has a bunch of phrases like that, and he's so smooth with how he calls the game, too, that it's, it's a real fun broadcast. You know, with some of those unique phrases that are fun if you get them, but if somebody doesn't get them, they may have no idea what they're talking about. How do you balance being creative with using language that the lowest common denominator fan will understand? I think it's all in in kind of how you do it. Um, you know, in Brian's broadcast, he's that's that's what it is. Like, there's a lot of of different phrasing. There's um, uh, he. I'm trying to think of, of some other ones, but he just has a lot of fun with, with his persona and how he does it. And so when you tune in uh, and you start listening, you're going to realize right away that it's that type of a broadcast. You know, Um, I remember once uh, listening on my way home from here and he was, there was a foul called and Brian couldn't understand why they were going to the free throw line when, you know, it was clearly a foul on the floor. And then his stats person eventually kind of alerted him like, Oh, that was the second foul in the last two minutes, you know, so it's they're in the penalty. And and Seaman just like you can almost hear him like lean back and say, Well, I stand corrected. I get most of my information <laughs> from almostaccurate.com and then moving on, you know, it's like almost accurate. Oh, like <laughs> so you have to pay attention, you know. He he the way he calls a game forces you um to pay attention. And you know, I don't use a whole lot of of phrases like that, mainly because uh 
I think it's hard. <laughs> like you've got to have these in your head. You've got to be like so on point of, you know, thinking of those and, and kind of associating them with certain moves and stuff like that, that, you know, for me, um, I'm just trying to describe what's happening as it, as it comes to me, you know? And I think Brian's been in the game a long time and, and that's always kind of been his, his thing. And so obviously like he's at a different level, you know, compared to everybody else in terms of understanding how to match up certain phrases um, with, with certain things. And that's what makes him, you know, the voice of the LA Clippers. And that's why, uh, you know, fans love him for that. Like that's, that's how he does a game. And it's, it's awesome to listen to, but it's also like, you know, that's, that's his style. It's not necessarily my style. If all of a sudden I was to try and work in those, it, it would sound forced. Whereas with him, it sounds supernatural. You know what I mean? I do. And I spend a lot of time working on vocabulary and I always debate whether what to use and what not to use. I actually wrote a article on my site about whether to use the nail as a court descriptor, oh, sure. which as a basketball person, I'm sure you know where it was, yeah. but I put it out on Twitter and I just said, who knows what the nail is on a basketball court? It was about 50-50. It was a lot of people had no idea what the nail is. But one thing so, you could do in that regard is describe where it is, you know? So, like, gets to this spot, the nail, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then you reference it again later as the nail. Yes, and that is what I, you know, even with that, with people tuning in and out, you just never know. I, yeah. I usually, I still say it every now and then. I try not to do it a whole lot, but I always say where it is. Mm-hmm. At the nail, the little small nail in the middle of the free throw line. Yeah. But it's one of those things that you just, uh, there's no one one way or no right way, but it's trying to figure it out as I go, I guess. But I think that's the fun part about listening to all these different broadcasters is, you know, these guys have been at it for a long time and they've developed their own styles, their unique styles, and, you know, nobody is is the same. And, you know, you listen, I mean, um, like some of the guys uh, out on the East Coast, Dave Johnson in Washington, and the way he calls a game, it's it's so different from the way that, that Brian calls a game, that Wheels calls a game, that Allen calls the game. You know, but Dave does a tremendous job with it. It's just, it's it's a different, it's in his style versus, you know, each one of these guys has their own unique style. And um, I brought up Dave because I enjoy listening to him. Or... Um, uh, Dave and Tom McGinnis of the Philadelphia 76ers. Tom is outstanding calling a game. He's so into it from the jump. He's, he's, I mean, you can almost just feel like how giddy he is to get out there to, to call a game and how much fun he's having. I mean, when the Sixers were like 0-18 or whatever, <laughs> I remember listening to a broadcast and they went on a run and they took the lead in the fourth quarter and McGinnis is like, and the fans are dancing in their seats and <laughs> are dancing in the aisles. And like, uh, you know, he's just having a good time with it and he's, he's into it too. So it's like, he's, he's on point, he's calling the game and he's having a lot of fun and being goofy at the same time, but that's just who he is, you know? And so each, each one, you know, and it's, it's that way across all sports, you know, but when you get to listen to these guys that have been with these teams that, you know, have, have like I talked about before, the layered on understanding and knowledge, like they tell great stories about the team. They have great memories from the team and they've got their own unique styles, which is different than when you listen to a national game. And, you know, they're the national broadcasts are very much, um, you know, 
more buttoned up, I would say, than the personalities of these guys that have have their own teams. Yeah, listening to Ian Eagle on Westwood One and Ian Eagle on the Nets is not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, but both are amazing, and I think those guys, like Sean Kelly, does that for. uh, Sean Kelly does some uh, Pelicans games, or he does a Pelicans games, but he does some ESPN games too. And those guys that can bounce back and forth from being a national guy to being, you know, the the voice of the team and think Mike Breen with uh, with New York. I mean, those guys are incredible to be able to bounce back and forth like that and um, step up to be that that national voice and then go right back to being the team voice. I like that you brought up Dave Johnson because we had him on the podcast quite a while ago, I find it really interesting what he does incorporating his audience into his broadcast the through social, social media, media stuff, with yeah. his radio party. That is very, very unique, and I uh, I don't know if I could do that. It almost seems like you would have to be incredibly focused and be able to to get those in, or or maybe he has someone who helps him. I don't really remember he probably said it in the podcast if uh if anybody wants to look back and find <laughs> it but uh, yeah what he does is is amazing mm-hmm. all those guys i mean that's i like i i i mean Sirius XM satellite radio was like getting the nba channel through there um so that when i'm on an off night and i'm cleaning up the kitchen after dinner i can listen to anything i mean obviously you could do it through audio league pass too um but to be sitting in there and and just be like uh, all right, I'm cleaning up the kitchen. The West Coast games haven't quite started yet. Like, give me the Memphis Grizzlies and listen to that game, or give me Craig Ackerman and the Houston Rockets. And, um, you know, it's just awesome to be able to listen to all these different things and then little things that they do in game, you know, whether it's like Indiana and, and Mark Boyle, who's one of the best in the business. Um, Very first Say the Damn Score podcast. Oh, really? Best. Yeah, Number Minnes- one. Minnesota guy. Don't right? go back uh, and listen to that one. It's not very good. St. Louis Park, uh, just down the road. But, you know, how they use Pat Boylan as a sideline reporter, you know, and they come out of a break and they go down to Pat and Pat talks about, you know, whatever trend is happening or, or little nugget he's got. And then back to, you know, Mark and Slick up in the booth. Like everybody's got got a unique way of doing it. And it's just it's I think it's fascinating um, number one, from like being a fan of basketball, but number two, being like, uh, you know, someone who enjoys listening to different radio and, and is always thinking, cause like you're always listening to yourself and critiquing yourself. Right. And so to listen to other people and be like, huh, would I have said that? You know, like how, how are they saying it different than me? Is it better? Do I like mine? Do I, you know, you're just constantly learning every time you listen. I use the tune in premium app it's yeah it's like a hundred dollars for the year and you can listen to pretty much any regular season game college or pro in any Mm -hmm. league it's it's fantastic and i should i shouldn't point out when i say don't go back and listen to the mark boyle one it's because i'm not very good not (laughs) because he's not very good but uh I think we're going to wrap it up here. If someone wanted to reach out, how would they get a hold of you, John? Yeah, probably the best way is uh, through Twitter, at J-W-F-O-C-K-E, at J-W-F-O-C-K-E. Um, that's probably the, the the best way to do it, easiest way to do it. All right. Well, once again, we are visiting with John Fokey. He is the voice of the Minnesota Lynx and the executive producer and studio host of, of the Minnesota Timberwolves. And, John, thanks so much for coming on. Logan, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And, man, we put in some overtime. So uh, glad to do it. And, 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 you know, it was fun having you down here to our studios.
Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps to make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show and just thank them for coming on and let them know that you appreciate them sharing their stories on this podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.